Written in Stone is co-created by Power Company Climbing. Products, training plans, and education to help you become a better climber. PowerCompanyClimbing.com. Use the code STONE, that's S-T-O-N-E, for 20% off of almost everything. Learn. Grow. Excel. Season one of Written in Stone, the 1990s, is supported by Tension Climbing. Wooden training tools designed with purpose in Denver, Colorado. Use the code STONE, that's S-T-O-N-E, to get 10% off of your next purchase at tensionclimbing.com and to let them know that their support for this show matters. Not valid for tension board sets, hardware, or gift cards. Cannot be combined with other offers. Tensionclimbing.com. Mastery over success. It's early 1991, just over 30 years since Warren Harding sieged the nose on El Cap, and only a couple of years since Skinner and Piana succeeded at free climbing the same world-famous chunk of California granite via the Salate Wall. The best free climbers of the day are taking to the big walls and high mountains, plying their strength and stamina in order to push their sport further into the future. The natural progression. Bigger, bolder, colder, alpiner. You get the idea. But there, some 4,000 feet off the ground in Patagonia, steeling himself against relentless winds, breathtaking cold, and what local weathermen might generously call a wintry mix, a serious contender for the world's best climber, Wolfgang Gulich thought, I just want to clip some bolts. I'm Chris Hampton. You're listening to Written in Stone, climbing's most important ascents. This is season one, the 1990s. One, two. Now, to be clear, Wolfgang didn't detour from free climbing's mountaineering push because he couldn't take the struggle. Sure, his friends go on record saying that at first free climbing didn't interest him because it seemed, and I quote, too strenuous. And he certainly didn't enjoy the cold, recalling having to once camp in the snow as the worst part of a brief stint in the German military. And yeah, he was notorious for showing up to crags with a pastry in one hand and a coffee in the other. If he decided to pass up a sit-down at the local cafe at all, that is. But it's remembered as a running joke amongst his friends. A sort of laid-back act. Because Wolfgang, despite it all, took a direct approach. 
born on October 24, 1960, Wolfgang had an active upbringing and adventurous parents. While hiking together one day, the family spotted climbers on a wall. Wolfgang and younger brother Fritz were instantly curious. Mom, sensing and sharing their excitement, hatched a plan with them to get Dad a climbing rope for his next birthday. Which is how, at 13, Wolfgang found himself aid climbing alongside his pops and little brother in a whole new vertical world that he was quickly falling in love with. By 15, Wolfgang was tackling tougher aid routes with his friend Christoph, meeting at the train station after school and jetting off to nearby crags. And it didn't take long for him to make the leap from aid climbing to free climbing, urged on by the local legends who'd been impressed by the young guy's nerve and skill. He claimed the first free ascent of a notable aid route in town at just 16 and was matching the hometown hero's sins in what seemed like no time at all. Soon, he was making a name for himself far beyond local crags in Germany, pushing grades higher and higher, past the point of what his climbing peers had considered possible. And it was important to him to travel and do the hardest things everywhere. If you don't ever travel, it's possible to become a stupid climber, he'd say. A person who only climbs in his own area is very limited and climbs like a computer. And so he went where the hardest routes were. On his first trip to the U.S., he cleaned up. Crimson Cringe, Super Crack, Tunnel Vision, Separate Reality, Tales of Power. And he brought that momentum back home. An impressive feat reported a local German publication, almost in disbelief. Wolfgang Gulich managed to climb all 512 routes on the Goschweinsteiner Wand in one day. His friend Milan Sikora once put it, I've never met a climber who, with a goal in sight, was more able to push himself than Wolfgang could. Once his energies were concentrated on a goal, he just ignored the pain, pushing himself to the point of exhaustion. And so, when climbing legend John Backer, Johnny Rock himself, came to Germany from the explosive American climbing scene and laid claim to the first 513 in the country, chasing the train, everyone recognized the name as a dig at European climbers. Try to keep up, Backer was saying. Humble, but rarely intimidated, Wolfgang heard that as an invitation. He did it, Wolfgang thought. So it's possible. Maybe Backer's right, but why not give it a shot anyway? And he claimed the second ascent, putting him in an elite category worldwide. He bagged two more first ascents of 513s in Germany before returning to America and sending first Equinox in Joshua Tree, then Cosmic Debris and Phoenix in Yosemite. And so by the time he stood under Tony Nero's Grand Illusion, a 13B and then the highest graded route in the world, Wolfgang had no doubts. If it's possible, it's possible for me. Let's do this. And he did. That was his way. Travel to the hardest climbs in the world, try them, send them, rinse, and repeat. Straightforward, simple, direct. 
And now, in the mid-80s, he had been content repeating the test pieces of the time. But once you're on top, it's much harder to keep moving up. And what's more, he didn't agree with the current accepted practice of chipping and finding all natural projects that had few enough holds to be possible but not that possible and fit into the right level of challenge for someone who could climb just about everything was exhausting. And that might help explain why he dipped his toes into competition climbing. Not his thing, he decided. A bit of free soloing and then alpinism. Which brings us back to Riders on the Storm. We'll be right back. Look, I love climbing, but I'm not a gearhead. I take one pair of shoes to the crag, I find a thing I like and I stick with it until I'm forced to find something new. Hell, I basically eat the same thing every single day. So when I choose a tool to use in my climbing and training, I choose tools I trust, which is why I have eight, yes, eight, different tension climbing finger training tools because anytime they come out with a new innovative product, I know they thought long and hard about its purpose. They don't make things just to have a new product out. They make things to make us better climbers. From their shoe spray, to the hone stone, to the tension board too, it's all done with real intention. Yeah, shoe spray for fuck's sake. I didn't believe it either at first. Now, it's in my bag every single session. If you choose your tools based on trust, do your climbing a favor. Go to tensionclimbing.com, use the code STONE for 10% off, and to let them know you appreciate them supporting this project. That's STONE, S-T-O-N-E. Restrictions apply. Not valid for tension board sets, hardware, or gift cards. It cannot be combined with other offers. Tensionclimbing.com. Mastery over success. Now, Wolfie, as his friends called him, took part in his fair share of impressive alpine ascents. And he enjoyed them, the long hikes in beautiful places, meeting people from different cultures, and experiencing new ways of life. With a team of friends, he made the first free ascent of Nameless Tower in the Karakorum via the Yugoslavian route, and later returned, along with German superstar Kurt Albert, his friend Christoph, and Milan Sikora, to establish a new route on the same wall. Eternal Flame, still one of the crown jewels of the style. And speaking of Eternal Flames, around the same time, Wolfgang met a woman named Annette. The love of his life, his friends call her, without a trace of irony. They were smitten with each other and planned to build a life together back in Germany. So by the time he found himself in Patagonia, 
on the summit of Riders on the Storm, it's easy to imagine on multiple levels that he was ready for a break from far-flung travel and the logistics of the high mountains. There's got to be a way to push the sport to new heights without actually going to new heights, he thought. Something harder, but closer to home, closer to the coffee shop, closer to Annette, a more direct approach. And as luck would have it, his alpine buddy Milan had recently put bolts into a formidable chunk of bulging limestone at the Waldkopf in the Frankenjura, starting up a crack and then heading left around a big bulge. And he'd done the upper moves, but couldn't ignore that the mostly blank section of rock soaring directly into the bulge itself looked potentially climbable. Maybe. Not by him. But someone. And he knew just the guy. And so Wolfgang got the call. Whoa, Wolfgang thought. This thing looks hard. Known for keeping careful notes of his climbs all throughout his life, Wolfgang had the pleasure of scrawling down not just the names of first ascents, but the firsts of new grades. Imagine him, quiet, ink pen in hand, notebook pressed against a nearby boulder in a cafe or at a coffee cup strewn kitchen table in an apartment crowded with climbing friends. Canal im Rücken, Frankenjura, Germany. World's first 513D. Punks in the gym, Mount Arapiles, Australia. World's first 514. Wall Street, Frankenjura, Germany. World's first 14B. His streak had only recently been interrupted by British climber Ben Moon's ascent of Hubble, the world's first 14C. And Wolfgang, as good as he was, was never known for being proud or outwardly competitive. He was a fundamentally nice guy. His humility was renowned. But come on, you can't be that good without a little competitive fire. It does look hard, he may have thought again, gazing at the line up and through the bulge. And then that big grin crept across his face. But, if the direct goes, it could be as hard as Hubble. It could be harder. The first time he tied in and tried the new line, he knew it was going to be next level. And with new possibilities come new necessities. And next level ascents require next level training. His good friend, climbing partner, and inventor of the concept of the red point, Kurt Albert, coined the phrase, doing a lot yields a lot. And in that spirit, Wolfgang got to work. The one-arm pull-ups and weighted hangs from tiny holds that other climbers were doing weren't going to be enough. Jumping between mono and two-finger pockets, the route felt like a terrorist attack on his tendons. And so, at a university gym in Nuremberg called the Campus Center, he installed a hanging ladder of wooden edges and small pockets to prepare to withstand the inevitable 
onslaught. The damn campus board. Sure, there was plenty going on outside of this new project. He got married, settled into a new home, spent time with friends. He hung out at the coffee shop and trained at the campus center. But all the while, he remained obsessed with those 12 meters of limestone. For 11 days, spread out over months, he would test new sequences, find the subtleties that took the moves from impossible to possible to done to dialed, learn to harness the explosive power required and wrap his brain, the thing he called the most important muscle in climbing, around the problem in front of him. And then on September 14th, 1991, with no warm-up, he sat down beneath the 45-degree overhanging prow and cinched the laces on his Boreal lasers. He adjusted his shimmering neon blue Lycra. He tied into his Edelweiss harness while Annette, his wife of five days, clipped into the belay. He brushed his flowing, sex symbol hair from his eyes, chalked up, took a deep breath, and then Wolfgang Gulich burst directly into action. He exploded from the first mono to the hard-to-hit right-hand Gaston two-finger. A huge cross led to the next tenuous hold. He decisively executed the next stab to another tiny pocket. No time for hesitation. No thought. Just action. And with the wild look in his eyes, he set up for the final dino. 16 moves. 70 seconds. Action. Direct. Less than a year after his landmark ascent of Action Direct, while driving on the Autobahn between Munich and Nuremberg, 31-year-old Wolfgang Gulich fell asleep at the wheel. He died two days later. Action Direct eventually settled at 9A, or 14D, the world's first, and it would be 10 years before someone would climb the next grade. One, two, Written in Stone is produced by me, Chris Hampton, with help from Riley Rush and Emily Holland for Plug Tone Audio, a group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. At the link in your show notes, you'll find all the things you expect and probably some you don't. And look, this show is 100% rooted in the facts, but like Todd Skinner always said, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. If you love what you're hearing, give us those five stars and a glowing review. And tell everyone you know at the crag, at the gym, follow the pod on your friends' phones and share it all over your social medias. And together, we can tell the stories of climbing's most important ascents one decade at a time.
in stoners. What is up, everybody? First off, before I go anywhere, thank you. All of you are obviously abiding by the first rule of the Secret Stoners Club, and that is that you share it with everyone you know. And I can tell because the numbers on this podcast, while while numbers are not my true north by any means, and I'm going to do a thing even if only 20 people love it, if I love it and I love this, um, the numbers have skyrocketed in the last week. And this thing is still brand new. So thank you all for continuing to share um, tell everybody at the crag about it. In fact, you know what? You shouldn't play music at the crag. I'm not a fan of that necessarily. However, if you want to play written in stone as loud as possible at the crag, I'd condone that, I think. Don't quote me on that. You know, this is not my fault if you get yelled at, but maybe you should do it anyway. Another thing, listening back to this episode made me laugh because well, this is one of the very first episodes we did. Uh, Riley Rush wrote a lot of this episode and then I, um, you know, we shaped it together. And in the shaping of it, I was trying really hard to do German accents for Wolfgang and for Kurt and for Milan Sakura. And it was not good. You guys, it was not good. Uh, my German accents kept turning into Indian. I didn't want them to turn into Indian, but it just kept devolving or evolving maybe into an Indian accent. I just couldn't do it. We did keep one moment of the accents. Um, I mean, in the episode, you know, I keep the, the newspaper as a German accent as my best attempt at a German accent. Um, but we did keep one little slice of Wolfgang and it was originally supposed to just stay in house as our own little private joke that should live on in infamy between the two of us forever. But you all are my friends. So here we go. But there, some 4,000 feet off the ground in Patagonia, steeling himself against relentless winds, breathtaking cold, and what local weathermen might generously call a wintry mix, a serious contender for the world's best climber, Wolfgang Gulich, thought, I just want to clip some bolts. <laughs> so you can see why... Uh, why we cut that idea. I, I am not an actor. We're, we're going to leave that to Ryan Devlin over at The Struggle. He actually is an actor. Um, not me. Especially to get all of the accents throughout the season, uh, I'd still be working on episode two. So, yeah. All right. Uh, next week, we've got two great guests. Um, number one, maybe the most obsessed uh, with Action Direct and Wolfgang Gulich Climber on the planet, and that's Ben Kasi. He is one of Australia's best and certainly its most colorful sport climber. It is an incredibly fun conversation, and we do get really nerdy, really deep in the weeds, and I'll warn you in the episode um, that you can skip ahead 
if we're going to be too in the weeds for you. And then after Ben Kasi, we're getting Alex Magos. I wasn't sure it was going to happen, but it did. And it was a really fantastic conversation. And he he lets loose a uh, a contradiction to some of the things he said in the past, uh, which we we point out um, very very much to my uh, joy, my glee. We we get to point out that Alex Magos has contradicted himself, and actually, you know, for the rest of this season. Now that people are hearing it and now that people are psyched, they are emailing me back. So several of our episodes are going to have three guests. There could be four guests for an episode or two. And I'm fine with that because it's really fun talking to people about all the different aspects of these things. Oh, and I've, I've also added an 11th episode. Uh, Emily, I'm sure, is sick of me adding things in here because she – corrals all of my ideas into, um, you know, organizes them for us. And I just keep throwing them at her. I think that's all the episodes I'm going to add for this season, but I had to add an 11th episode because this climber keeps coming up in my research and in the stories. And I had initially cut him from the season and now I don't think I can. I don't think I can tell these stories without him. All right. I've already been talking too long. I will see you all next week after the Ben Kasi episode. Bye.